Each week on Emergency, you will hear discussions from EMTs, paramedics, physicians, respiratory therapists, nurses, and other healthcare professionals who are experienced providers in emergency medical care. These guests discuss their personal experiences in the world of emergency, as well as what it takes to provide care in some of the most stressful environments possible. There will also be honest conversations with people who have received emergency medical care, and they will bravely share their experiences as a patient who may have needed an emergency intervention. Expect funny, educational, and insightful conversations, which will illuminate the humanistic side of an often misrepresented profession. The Emergency Podcast is hosted by me, Samantha Barella, owner of Emerge Education Solutions, and I'm also a currently licensed paramedic. I want to give you a heads up that um, our episode today may contain some profanity language as well as some uh, gross descriptions about human anatomy and injuries and illnesses. So listener discretion is advised. Let's jump into our episode. For today's episode, I get the privilege of talking to Kelly Smith, who is a trauma coordinator at a local hospital here in New Mexico. Kelly shares not only her personal history as a nurse, but also her experience being a trauma coordinator and how being a trauma coordinator has impacted her, not only in patient care, but also as a person. Kelly has some vulnerable moments and shares some amazing stories with us. We also share some laughter, and I hope you guys enjoy this episode that's everything trauma. For more information about trauma, as well as how you can obtain CE credit for this episode, please visit www.emergeeducationsolutions.com. I'm really, really pumped for today's conversation. I hope to learn so, so much from you. I have Kelly Smith in the studio. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm so excited to have you. We're talking everything trauma today, folks. Trauma is like... Everybody thinks EMS, they think gory blood and guts and brains and all trauma. They don't know it's a lot of medical stuff, but (laughs) uh, we always think trauma when we think EMS too. So I'm super excited to have you here, Kelly. Let's talk about you for a minute. You want to? Sure. (laughs) So um, I know Kelly from um, my experience being an EMS, obviously, but also um, because of some of the trauma work I've done in some of the committees that I've been on. Um, And Kelly is the trauma coordinator um, at a local hospital here in New Mexico. And um, Kelly, tell us a little bit about your background previously to your current role when it comes to trauma. Well, when it comes to trauma, I've been a nurse for 36 years, Mm. always in the emergency department. Mm -hmm. Um, I've worked all over the United States. I've always loved trauma. Any trauma patient, that's where I would be in the trauma rooms. Hate cardiac. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're all 12 lead, smell lead. No cardiac. <laughs> and um, so I had the opportunity about seven years ago to um, be a trauma manager or a coordinator in Colorado. Mm-hmm. So I did that for a while, and then I was a trauma quality specialist at a level two hospital. And then this opportunity opened up in Santa Fe, and so I... Um, my husband and I moved there, and I became the trauma program manager in Santa Fe. So why trauma? Like, why is why was trauma always something you loved? I think um, 
first of all, I love adrenaline. <laughs> I love knowing that um, most trauma patients can do okay with care. They're pretty cut and dry. You can see what's happening mm-hmm. with them. Um, it's interesting. Mechanism of trauma has always been really interesting to me. What kind of force a body can take. Oh, yeah. Um, and what kind of injuries that particular force will cause on a patient. Uh, and so I think that's why I've always been drawn to it. I, and it's quick and exciting when you're in a trauma room with a real trauma patient. It's one of the most choreographed, amazing things to see mm-hmm. is a whole team working together to save a patient that's had a severe traumatic insult on his body. Mm-hmm. And as you're talking, I'm thinking like I'm paralleling it with a cardiac arrest kind of. And in, in, in my experience, uh, those have been a little bit uncoordinated. Right. <laughs> it's been a little bit of a challenge. Um, I've found in the hospital setting, more than in the pre-hospital setting, I think in pre-hospital it's just, it's like very similar maybe to what you're describing as far as like an orchestrated event. But in the hospital, the roles, I think, get confused and stuff. So it's it's not as smooth as I think it could be. But what, how would you then parallel like cardiac arrest in hospital versus what you're describing with trauma? Um, is, is it because everyone knows their roles? Maybe it's because everyone knows the roles. You can also see what's going on with the trauma patient. Mm-hmm. You you know that if they're hyper are hypotensive, they're bleeding, right? Right. With a cardiac patient, it's just a lot of unknowns. It could be so many things: an electrolyte imbalance, um, a an MI, an mm-hmm. uh, odd rhythm that's caused a cardiac arrest. So there's it's more hidden, I guess, is the way I would describe it. You, it's just really it's like a crapshoot wondering what is going on with that cardiac arrest patient. Whereas a trauma patient, most of the injuries are visible or they're easy to figure out. Oh, right. Because you have imaging. So you can just scan people. You know, hypotensive means bleeding, Mm -hmm. but hypotensive in a cardiac doesn't mean bleeding. We don't know, you know, you don't know what it is. Right. So that's why I always thought trauma is simple. I like simple Mm -hmm. because I'm Simple. <laughs> so Simple's okay. Simple's great. Yeah. So that's why I was always attracted to that because it was just easy to see, easy, and most times fixable. Whereas cardiac was kind of the unknown type. Right. I mean, there's a lot insult. of, I mean, and there's so many things you can like try to find out why a patient is hypotensive when it comes to a medical. Right. It's just delved. Be their medication, so, exactly like anything. Yeah, and so I get what you're saying is trauma being just very obvious, right? Pretty much, right? right? Pretty much obvious, right? Um, so with trauma, we'll go back even further. I have to, we have to talk about. So Kelly and I talked a little bit before we started <laughs> recording, and she told me this awesome piece of her and your history that I didn't really know. So tell us what kind of degree you have. Okay, so. <laughs> Other than other than nursing, I have my first degree was um, in production agriculture, and I said, "Oh, what? <laughs> what is that?" <laughs> and so I went to ag school in Nebraska. I'm from Nebraska, mm-hmm. and I grew up um, outside of a town of 250. So I always was a ranch hand. I lived and worked on horses my whole childhood, and all I wanted to do was 
manage a feedlot or manage a ranch when I grew up. So I went to ag school in Nebraska, and like I'd have classes like sheep management. Wow! (laughs) So you learned a lot about the animals. A lot about animal management that you didn't know. And is it like animal behaviors? No, no, more like feeding and growing animals to get the most bang for your buck when you send them off to market. I see. Wow, that is so cool. I just like (laughs) screw EMS. We're talking. (laughs) <laughs> I was also the Garden County Fair and Rodeo Queen. Good for you. Yes. Yes. I want to see some pictures. <laughs> I had a crown. <laughs> That's so awesome. Do you still have it? No, I don't have, Damn. I don't have the crown. Be, can you I wear will, it? Can I you will wear, wear it? it. I'm going to buy one and wear it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, stand by, everybody. We're going to post a picture. But you don't have it. So, no. damn. No. So, yeah. So, that was my, like, love of my life was... Anything ranch related, right? So, so is there a connection between that and nursing and trauma? Maybe. Um, with ranching, you never know what's going to happen. I, I mean, we worked with a lot of huge animals. Let's face it, um, cattle are twelve hundred plus pounds. I've seen a lot of injuries at rodeos. Oh, I things bet. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and also, it was kind of probably a, a similar in. They're most of the time it's kind of laid back, but when something happened, it was big and good. Yeah. Or or bad, however you want to look at it. For me, it was good. Yeah. Or I, I bad. know, I know. Yes, yes. It was it was serious. <laughs> it was serious. It wasn't some bullshit. Right. Was... Right. So that was probably part of it. Now I want to tell you when I first, my dad told me I had to go to nursing school to have an honorable profession, because that's how old I am, is women had to have an honorable profession. And that wasn't, or was it because you were no, a woman? he didn't want me to be a ranch hand. Like, right? that didn't really equal right. with that's a, a man's a woman. job. Oh, I see, I see. So, when I went to nursing school, I didn't even know that you had to take a test or state boards to become a nurse. I had just, I knew nothing about nursing at all. So um, it was all brand new to me when I started nursing school. What um, what made you stick with it for all these years? Like, I did think you just I fall just, in love with it? I, I fell in love with the ER nursing. Uh-huh. And um, I think a lot of it uh, was my, my life was pretty chaotic growing up. So I was able to handle that chaos in the ER. That was normal for me. Um, so I felt comfortable there. Mm-hmm. I, I had worked a little bit... Um, on a OB floor, that wasn't comfortable for me. It was not at all. But that ER, that chaos, that unknown, that's what I was used to growing up. Right. So I was right at home in that situation. Right. Um, so so let's, let's go back to some of that experience that you have and talk a little bit about trauma and the trauma patients that you have. So, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just making an assumption by piecing all these things you're telling me about yourself together that you were, like, you were working in the ER, taking care of patients, doing patient care, and then at some point in your career, you decided you wanted to maybe make an impact or have a say or a seat at the table when it comes to trauma patients specifically. So, um, Share with me, like, what that experience was like. Like, what made you decide to become a trauma coordinator versus just doing patient care? Well, one um, one thing is exactly like you said. I wanted a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. I felt like I had enough years of expertise 
in working in trauma um, hospitals, trauma centers. I've worked in huge hospitals to little hospitals on islands in Alaska. Um, I felt like I had the experience that I could bring all that experience to the table as a trauma um, coordinator to make whatever ho trauma hospital I was at even better than it was. Okay. Um, so that was like, and still is my goal is, to me, trauma care is so important. Um, and I want everyone to have the best chance ever that is ever in any kind of si a tra trauma situation. Right. And it includes, I'm pre-hospital, you know, uh, pre-hospital to the day of discharge is what, what I follow right now and look at. Yeah. So that's really cool. Um, from the EMS standpoint, I don't, would you say that here locally, and I, I don't know, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong too, does EMS differ? Do you, have you found in all of the places that you've been that this certain type, like rural EMS is really on it, or urban EMS is really on it, and when it comes to trauma, or is it just EMS is EMS, regardless of the setting, and is there just like something that you think we could, like if you could just say one thing you want all EMS professionals to know, what would it be? That I know our people want to be a team. I know that was yeah. a big, big, a lot. I just asked you. <laughs> I'm just going to say a one word answer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, I think uh, my biggest thing is that we're a team. Whether we're in the hospital or we're out in the field, we're all one team because we're taking care of that same patient. Right. We just happen to have them at different points of time. And um, that's what I really want to strive for in this area. And I think we mostly function like that as a as a team that all our goal is to make sure that patient has the best care from the time they're picked up to the time they're discharged from the hospital right so that that is the thing that i see and i will tell you i've i've worked with the volunteers they do what they can mm -hmm. um they're very impressive for what they can do um but the EMS in this area is top-notch from what I've seen from working all over the country. Wow. So I am always impressed every day. Wow. So, that's yeah. super awesome yeah. to hear. Wow. I'm not even in the field locally, but I'm, I, I feel, like, really flattered that you said that. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm really proud to be a representative of the EMS that's in right. this area and what they bring to the table. Um, Absolutely. They are, they're very professional, and they know what they're doing. I, I am like beyond impressed. So yeah, proud to be part of the team. Aw, and I, and I, I want to toot my own horn though. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I get to train some of those providers, you know, depending on the department they're in, there's, there's numerous people of those providers that I've had the opportunity and privilege to train. And trauma is really kind of my area that I, I really like. I mean, I like cardiac and I like airway as well, but trauma is one of the areas that I, I really think where we can truly, truly make a difference right. with the tools that we have on our truck. A lot of times our medical patients need medications that are outside of our exactly, scope yeah. or they need procedures and treatments that are outside of our scope. But when it comes to a trauma patient, I truly feel like we have the tools to really save those people and do good care on them and get them at least to definitive care. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Bright, bright lights, cold steel. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> so that's so. So I'm really. Um, I'm gonna just thank you so much oh, for that no. compliment. Yeah. Thank for the you, local guys, EMS. and thank all the EMS in this area. I would 
trust any family member and myself with them. And I'm not a very trusting person when it comes to medical care. Yeah. Because I'm very, um, like, overprotective. And I want to make sure everybody's doing everything right. And right. them I would put in my hands freely. I would Aww. put myself in their hands. So, yeah. Aw, thank you. Yeah. So tell, tell me if you could think of um, one particular patient that has really impacted you along your career. It could have been when you were as a trauma coordinator or when you were doing patient care in the ED. Um, is there, we all have like this, this handful of patients. If someone were to ask us, oh, tell me the most story that impacted you the most, something like that, you can probably think of a few off the top of your head. Right. You probably all can, right? If you're seasoned and have been in a minute, right? Yes. Um, so can you share? Are you willing to share or do you have a story you can share with us? I have I have so many stories. Ooh. Well, we got time, girl. <laughs> go ahead. Ready, go. So <laughs> um, this was uh, happened in most of my experiences, I would say that really impact my um, myself and my being on patient care happened when I was an ER nurse, just because I was an ER nurse for so many years. And um, the first patient that I can really remember impacting me is uh, I was working in a huge level one trauma center in Texas. And um, I was young. And when you're young, you're a hot shot <laughs> and you're very egotistical and you think you know everything. And a young boy came in, he was 10. And he had had a seizure on the side of the road mm -hmm. in town. And so we had him in the trauma room. And I'm going to just say we because I'm going to be, I was one of them that was doing it. We're yelling at him, yelling at him, saying, what did you take? What did you take? Because we were sure he had ingested drugs. Mm -hmm. um, we were not nice to him by yelling at him. All he wanted was his grandma. Mm -hmm. um, so we were caring for him, and then suddenly he uh, had a disconjugate gaze and arrested. Mm. And he ended up dying. And all he wanted was his grandma. Yeah. And from that time, I thought, why, why were we, we were judgmental. Mm -hmm. We were not nice. And why, why were we like that? You right. Know? We were so full of ourselves that we didn't listen to him. And that really changed the way I was, um, I want to say, the way I treated people. Because I'll never forget it. It was, oh, probably 33, 34 years ago now. Yeah. So it really made a huge impact on me. Just to know that everyone has a story and everyone has a family that loves them, that you really need to stop and listen to that person and not be judgmental just because a person comes in drunk all the time they're not a drunk they're somebody's family member that means something to somebody right yeah because we get into that yeah and I think it's really easy especially as you get burnt out and, and right. do you think you were burnt out at that time I think I was just full of myself oh, okay <laughs> okay yeah I think I was just thought I was hot shit yeah hot yeah. shit yeah. right I thought it was hot shit and I was working in this level one trauma center. We saw over 600 patients a day there. Jeez. Um, and uh, 
It's easy to get like that. So like, easy to get like with that. With that volume. Right. You just are like, oh, great. You know? Yeah. Not I, another one. I totally get it. I mean, the, the busiest ER I've worked in, I think, was about 2 to 250 a day of patients that we'd see. And it was, I was very similar to what you're, I, I can totally relate to what you're saying right. of just being an asshole to yeah. people. Yeah, why do we do that? Right. I don't I, understand. I don't understand and I did it. I think it's like, honestly, <laughs> I think like it's a protective mechanism that we do just naturally. We become defensive. I think that's it. To protect ourselves from the o- being overwhelmed. Right. And, and, and really taking in all of what I call the micro traumas. I mean, I, I'm I think no, that's a good way to put it. I'm no psychologist. Psychologist, I don't know shit, but I'm just paramedic. But obviously, <laughs> <I'm>, obviously. <laughs> if I had to guess, like just based on my own experience, I think that that may be why I have been an asshole to patients at times is just because of the defensive mechanism we put up. And I think too, I think if I could go back in time and be a nurse now, then with what I know now, yeah, I would be such a different nurse. I would. Yes. I'd really be a great nurse. Uh, not that I wasn't great. I think I was really super good at what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I'd be different. I'd be more empathetic. Your bedside manner would be different. Absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. agree. I sometimes think about that now, too. If I was in the field taking care of patients, how would I approach those situations differently? Right, right. So I feel very similar to that as like, man, I was such an asshole to some of those people. Yeah, and for no reason. Yeah, and, and not only that, but then it also, I think, is then... Um, reinforced by our peers because our why do why are we so mean I to each other no but we are cuz i th- are we recording <laughs> i <laughs> is this on it wasn't a good ship for me unless i made a nurse cry oh my god really back in the back like 30 years ago like if there was a new nurse on if i did not make that nurse cry because they were doing something stupid i was a hell on wheels and i have mellowed so much but I think, too, I just wanted the best for that patient and the care. And when I saw stupid shit happening, yeah. I would be like, uh-uh, no yeah. way. You I, know? Yeah, I think I think in a lot of ways I'm similar, too, where it's like, I'm trusting you to know right. how to do your job. Right, and you clearly exactly. Don't, so move that's and it. Yeah, move it. out. Yeah. yeah, that's it. I'll just do it. If you cry, you can't be in the ER. <laughs> <laughs> There's no crying in the ER. <laughs> We're so mean. Is this on? Is no, this are, on? We, are we recording? So, yeah. So, yeah. I've changed a lot. Wow, thank I've you for sharing that. I think it takes a lot of um, vulnerability to, to admit, at, like, in this on this platform to all these people listening that you are an asshole and you're a piece of care. Right, exactly. So, kudos to you. Thank you for sharing that with us. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> Do you have – okay, so tell us now a story about um, – a trauma patient that really impacted you from a coordinator standpoint where you got to see, because hmm. you're in like this super cool, unique position that you get to see the big picture. You get to see all of this patient's care from from the time they were dispatched to, or EMS is dispatched until they're discharged from the hospital. So you're in this super cool, unique position, whereas I only get to see the pre-hospital setting. And I think a lot of people listening, too, I just want to add this in here, is that a lot of EMS providers listening are probably thinking, if not saying, we don't ever get any follow-up, we don't ever get any follow-up. So back to your position, you don't, you you are the follow-up, like you get to see the big picture. So is there a patient who whose story really impacted you from a trauma perspective from 
the time they were dispatched till they were discharged because you got to see that whole picture? The, the most, I can think of like, I go through so many charts and let me say part of my job is I feel like I'm a private investigator. Mm -hmm. So I read these patients charts from pre-hospital EMS run sheets throughout their stay. And then I look at them daily while they're in the hospital. So I'm concurrent, like um, within 24 hours of care that they're getting. Um, also, uh, I look at almost a thousand charts a year. Wow. So it's hard to keep track of certain particular patients. Yeah. Um, the one most recently, I think, and we all can, that have been in this a while, know that if someone um, arrests and then has a thoracotomy and cardiac massage, mm -hmm. usually they die. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. I've, I've seen many, many, many um, open chests, and I've seen very, very few live. Right. And so what she's describing for anyone who doesn't know <laughs> uh, the lingo is that we call it, and you may have heard of it, is like cracking, cracking the, chest. the chest. So yep. they'll just cut the sternum open. Or do they cut the ribs? Ribs. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they cut the ribs, open up the ribs and the, the thoracic cavity, and then they have direct access and view of the heart. Right. And so then you can... I've seen IVs started in the heart. I've done cardiac massage. Um, just that'd be like an internal CPR. Right. Like meaning your hand goes into the thoracic cavity, into the chest because the ribs are cracked. Right. Uh, and your hand is squeezing the heart, doing right. the mechanical squeezing that the heart would do on its own. Exactly. It is, AKA cardiac massage. Exactly. So, okay. And so, that's always a last ditch effort. Right. It's nothing else has worked. So, and the patient doesn't have a heartbeat. So, and you've tried absolutely everything else. And this um, patient this happened to, it was a gunshot wound. Mm -hmm. um, I think just one. Yeah, just one. Um, that, that arrested on the way to the hospital mm -hmm. and had um, a crack, got his chest cracked in the, in the ED, in the trauma room. Um, had 10 to 15 minutes of cardiac massage. So his heart was not beating on its own for 10 to 15 minutes. Uh -huh. <laughs> While this is happening, he's getting loads of blood to bring him back. You're infusing him. Infusing him with blood, Yeah. right? Um, because he's losing so much from the gunshot wound. Went to the OR. Um, they stopped the bleeding, and the guy went home fine. <gasps> I know, right? Wow. I've never seen it. Wow. <laughs> so, so, yeah, he didn't go to a nursing home. He didn't go to LTAC. Like he was cognitively he was cognitive. intact. It, yes, he was fine. Fine, fine. So, so those of you that don't know some of the medical background and how all this pieces together is that really our goal in, in EMS and probably in the ED too is um, brain perfusion. Obviously, the heart perfuses the brain with oxygen and blood and, and gets rid of uh, waste products too, but primarily the brain lives off of oxygen and glucose. So if the heart isn't pumping, the brain's not getting the nutrients it needs. And the brain is very sensitive to a lack of oxygen. And usually most healthy people um, can only sustain about four to six minutes without oxygen to their brain. And that's somebody who's healthy that doesn't have any comorbidities. So somebody who has like diabetes or cardiovascular disease or COPD or something like that, their, their time frame is even less. And so 
um, if the heart's not pumping, we try to do that by doing chest compressions in order to perfuse the brain so the brain's cognitively intact so that patient doesn't end up as a vegetable is really the right. goal. And so last-ditch effort, like Kelly's describing, is that we – we, not me, we, someone out there, some surgeon, <laughs> cracks the chest. <laughs> and, Everyone loves a cracked chest. And uh, <laughs> they go in and then they will manually squeeze the heart to pump blood to the brain to try to help keep the brain cognitively and neurologically intact. So that's kind of what Kelly's trying to describe. Right. Um, but it, like she said, it's a last-ditch effort. If you can imagine getting your ribs cut and someone's hand going into your chest to squeeze your heart and then let go of your heart so the heart can fill up with blood and then squeeze it again. And that would be the same thing as your heart beating to perfuse your brain. So that's the long story from... Rarely um, works. Trying to keep it general, like, right. so people can understand. Um, but cracked chest. So if you say, like, when we in EMS hear that our patient got their chest cracked, we're like, what? That's so gnarly because they're literally breaking the ribs off of the sternum. Exactly. Now, um, I've only seen one of these. And when they did it... They um, did both sides of the ribs. Is it generally both sides or is it only you, one side? It depends on on where the bleeding's coming from. So say I get shot in both sides of my chest yeah. and I'm, I don't have a pulse uh-huh. and they've tried everything. They're going to crack both sides because obviously I've got bleeding occurring in both sides. Right. Usually they'll only crack the side, um, one side. Okay. Yep. R- rarely two. Okay. And so... This individual that you're describing, so he got his chest cracked, and then he went to the OR, and then they put it back together? Yeah, they just sew it back together. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I can't imagine how much pain. Right. Like, if any one of you have broken a rib before, you, I'm sure, can imagine how painful having all of your ribs off of your sternum broken. That's it. And and, if, and a lot of times what they'll do, Sam, is they cut in between the ribs and then spread that open, too. Like on so the side, under the armpit? Yeah, they use a rib spreader. Oh, my gosh. Which can't be comfortable either. <laughs> the healing. I'm just thinking of, like, right. this particular It would be like individual. having a huge open heart surgery. That would be right? so painful. Yeah. 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 And, and all of you guys, like, now, if you, like, as you're talking, I keep touching my chest and ch- touching my sternum because there's not a whole lot of tissue there. There's not no. a lot of protection. So the healing time of, the, of your ribs fusing back together essentially how long is that like a year or two no i don't think it's that long probably about six months okay. maybe or less but like even every breath right every right everything would oh hurt God, right be... exactly so this individual then okay so you said he lived mm-hmm. and then do you do you guys like keep keep in contact with some of these patients after the fact or the only way they would keep in contact is through clinic but i don't personally Gotcha. Keep in contact with any of them. Okay. Right? So once they're discharged, they're, I'm they're done. just done. Cause, and I'm some, done. Some of us in EMS, we do um, begin to build somewhat of, I mean, it's still professional, but it's more of a personal rapport. Um, so like I think of it as, as an example is I had a two-year-old that was anaphylaxis at one time in our transport from, not our transport, but our um the time it took for us to get from being dispatched to where this person lived was like 25 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it was a two-year-old in anaphylaxis. Um, so you can imagine how nervous right, and scared exactly. I was. Um, so I gave this kid epi and then some albuterol and they were okay. And so we took him to the hospital, right? So the kid, the outcome was positive and the kid was fine. Um, but the family, and it was around Christmas time when this happened, the family brought 
me over a Christmas gift. And then every Christmas after that, they would bring cookies to the station. And I got to see this little girl. Uh, I, I think it was she was like five or six by the time I left fire. But they would come every Christmas oh, and bring so us cool. cookies of the station and just like thank us. So so I'm even though it was still professional, there's still like a personal right. aspect of it. Um, and so do you guys do that? Like any of your patients, do you have that kind of rapport with after the fact? Like not, not now, mm-hmm. um, probably because I never actually see the patient in my current position. Mm-hmm. When I was a nurse, um, one of the best uh, experiences of my life, I worked 16 years in a pediatric trauma center in the ER mm-hmm. and we would develop very strong relationships with a lot of those kids and a lot of them would be medical chronic kids that would come in a lot to the ER but then I had a uh, quite a few of the kids that had bad traumas especially bad head traumas mm-hmm. where the parents would keep in touch with us and then you know bring them back to the ER sometimes to visit us and I really liked that because and as a nurse too a lot of times I know that especially as an ER nurse once that patient has left your ER, you never really know what happens to them. You're right. Because cause then you're on to the next patient, right? So you yeah. don't know. You don't know if they did well, if they did poor, if they lived or died. So you just go on to the next patient. And that's one thing about working there that I loved. I love pediatric patients. Um, I loved working in a PEDS hospital is that you did develop a relationship with some of these patients and Mm -hmm. like you said it was like a professional relationship but we get christmas cards or coloring you know pictures um things like that and one of the patients that i remember was a young kid i think he was around 13 he uh he was uh i think i can't remember if he fell or what but he had a big epidural bleed and my friend um, my best friend and I were always in the trauma rooms together and we had him and he was herniating his brain stem oh and gosh. we ran him to the OR and we ran into the OR and they just started taking, you know, drilling, and, drilling and, yeah. his skull off mm-hmm. so that they could um, evacuate that bleed in mm-hmm. his head. And uh, we thought this kid's dead. You know, he's herniating his brain stem. Um, and then we went down for the next trauma. And probably about, I'm going to say it was almost half a year later, I was out in triage, and it is a crazy triage, a children's ER triage. It is nuts. I can imagine. <laughs> There's like 75 kids out there, and everybody's crying and yelling. and The parents then, are getting pissed. Parents. And yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so this woman walks in with this teenage kid, with, and he's got braces, and he just looks like a goofy teenage kid, you know. <laughs> And she's like, Kelly? And I said, yeah. She goes, do you remember him? And it was him, and he was fine. It was crazy. I'll never forget it. And I was just like, no. She goes, I know. You were his angel. And then they shared the story with you. She's like, remember, we thought he Mm -hmm. was going to die. And and he's like, yeah, I'm doing good. You know, it was amazing. And that truly makes you know that there are miracles that happen only one of them. Yeah, and and I think it's those kinds of moments that keep us going as providers. And and Absolutely. I don't think there's enough of those moments. No, they don't come very often. And maybe that's why we're assholes. <laughs> that might be why we're mean. <laughs> 
we need, we need more miracles. Yeah, we need more. We need more encouragement of the good job we right. are doing. Because sometimes right. it seems like you're working your butt off, and it do- isn't really making a difference. It's D- like you're you're really hustling, and you're really exactly. trying to make an impact and trying to do the best care you can. But sometimes it just feels like you're drowning, and you just aren't making a lot an impact. of times you're drowning, mm-hmm. especially in the ER as a nurse. You and it's a busy ER. Most of the time, people are very angry with you, mm-hmm. even though you're just trying to help out. And I mean, I've been called names. Oh, I've been shoved up against walls. Yep. I've had a gun pulled on me, a knife pulled on me. My friend had her arm broken. Yep. All by patients or patients' family members. Yes. And they're, so it's kind of an ungrateful type job. Yeah. Um, you don't get a lot of thank you cards from patients, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, just to have those few little lights, it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, it's definitely a big deal. Yeah. Um, so I want to link us uh, trauma and EMS together. Um, what what kinds of things do you think EMS is does good at? And what kinds of things do you think EMS needs more training in? Hmm. <laughs> Boy, like I say... Sam, I think the EMS here does a great job. Mm-hmm. Great job. I think the biggest thing maybe is, and it goes both ways, is communication in the ED. And I think both sides need to work on that. Yeah. And, and when I say communication, I'm talking about communication about what is going on with the patient. Um, I don't know, easy way to fix that is, but just to talk. And a lot of times they will tell someone, but yeah. then that, ER side, they don't tell anybody. They just keep it to themselves. You know, so then when, say, a surgeon comes in and wants to know what's going on, they don't know because EMS has left, the person they told, who knows where they're at. Yeah. So I think that's the biggest thing. And um, just know that if they need anything, that I'm always available for anything, any help at all or communication with them or any anything like that because I – was brought up in an ER culture where EMS has your back and you have their back. Mm -hmm. So um, that's what I want to uh, really see here is that we're in this together. Right. And I always respect EMS so much. I couldn't do their job, you know. So I think that's that's it, communication. Improvement of... It's improvement of communication and, and about the patient. When you say communication, that's not just verbal. It's written communication Verbal as well. and written. I think, um, well, as far as verbal, you know, it takes a while to get a run sheet, but those guys are busy, and I understand it takes them a while to write a run sheet. It'd be like me trying to catch up on my charting, you right. know, when I used to have to do it by hand. And uh, Oh, the good old days. The good old days. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody needed a pen. Um so I think that's the biggest thing is just uh, not only written is verbal communication is even more key mm-hmm. because I always tell um, the ER providers and that includes doctors and nurses, uh, especially with trauma and mechanism of trauma is if the EMS said, let's just use a car crash. If the EMS says the vehicle looks like this, then the vehicle looks like this. Don't second guess them. You weren't there. Right. You know, so I think that's a big thing is just, Maybe descriptions of the scene. Yeah. Um, really emphasizing that, yeah, this was a bad car wreck. Because I'll, I'll get providers that will 
um, say, well, well, they didn't have anything wrong with them. The car couldn't have been that bad. And I said, if EMS says it was bad, it was bad. Yeah. You know? What do you think about pictures? I love pictures. So we we discourage our crews from taking pictures on a personal device like their right, phone. Right, Because then it's subject to subpoena or something exactly. like that. And so we discourage that. Um, but I think it could be a form of communication if, if we could collaborate our local services, EMS services, with the, the trauma providers and, and have, like, that maybe like a trauma grant that could be a grant. Oh, I know that sounds services. like a good idea. Let's do it. <laughs> and they could buy some cameras, right? That, that would, right? That would, uh, if if it's subject to subpoena, who cares, right? Right, exactly. Um, but we discourage it in the field. But if there was a way to be able to really take pictures, and then and then I'm imagining like in a perfect world, I'm envisioning that we would then train these crews to say. Like if you have a, a response of a crew of six people, one person while the medic is taking care of that patient, one person, and even if we leave scene, even if we're not on scene that long, one person can stay there and take the pictures. Right. And then because we have the internet, we could we just do. electronically send them to the trauma surgeon and then they can see f- real time firsthand or even a video or something, you know. And I tell you, because with trauma, especially um, blunt trauma, pictures are they're like a thousand words right because you can I know that um you can see what that patient what kind of force that patient went through during whatever accident happened to them you can really see that and I think it makes such an impact and not only for their care but for care of patients in the future Mm -hmm. um because you can say well we have so many safety devices now. A lot of people in their mind are like, well, the car isn't that bad. You right. know, their airbags went off. They don't understand the injuries you can get, even though we have all those safety safety equipment in a car. They're, you still get devastating injuries. Right. And, well, energy penetrates all that, right? Right. And, yeah, and energy really, doesn't care. Right. And the end result is our organs <laughs> right. we, uh, we absorb take that it. energy. Exactly. Yeah. We absorb all that energy. So to see a car, I know I um, had a few slides of a car car crash. Um, I think a family member had shared them, mm. and uh, I used that in training with the trauma nurses because they this patient they had thought wasn't that bad, you know. And then I showed them the car, and then the patient's injuries, which she had some big injuries and then they were like oh yeah no wonder she had those injuries look at her car right you know and then you get that odd case that there's nothing wrong with the car and the patient is messed totally, up yeah, yeah totally messed up yeah well and i was as you're talking i'm thinking about like even at a civilian regular everyday layperson right you if you're loved one is flown to the hospital let's say because they were in a car accident always the first thing is what did the car yeah, look like, right? Exactly. Like we, That's exactly right. And and looking at that picture, um, really, or and I've not had this experience of showing a picture to a loved one, but when they arrive on scene and they see the condition of the vehicle, there's a, there's an impact. There's, there's this show of emotion just based on right. what that scene looks like. Because you can imagine then as that person who's, loved ones been in that accident you can imagine oh my god if the car looks like that Mm -hmm. he's got to be injured so badly right right and i think that is where we can maybe 
should try to shift the culture a little bit Absolutely. To, to make it more of a standard protocol that we are taking pictures for you guys right. and, and eventually getting them to you like within uh, maybe half an hour or yeah, something, like a time frame. I think that would be amazing. That would be really good. Mm-hmm. Let's work on it. Okay, let's We're going to change the we'll world. We'll do it by next week. Let's change the world. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love this. Okay. Um, so about... About how many pa- trauma patients, so you said a 1,000 charts a year. Now, is that like just Joe Schmo sprained his ankle, or is it like ser- is there like a criteria? There is. There is a criteria. And as part of a trauma center, we have patients that, we, that have to meet inclusion criteria. And those are the ones that we put in this data bank. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, that data bank goes to the state, mm-hmm. and then it goes to the National Trauma Data Bank. Um, so inclusion criteria is a patient with a traumatic injury that is admitted, died, or transferred. Okay. So those are the only ones that we look at. And they can be activated. We have trauma activation levels, and those are just, say, alerts for providers because we want to expedite the care that get, that patient gets according to whatever trauma level they are. Mm-hmm. So a trauma stat, the worst is all physiologic. So I've been in a car accident. I have a low blood pressure. I'm hypotensive. Maybe I have um, difficulty breathing or I'm having to be intubated. Mm-hmm. Or I have a low Glasgow Como scale or GCS, which means I'm, I'm maybe going to be unconscious, not quite there yet, right. or I am. And when you say low, is it eight and below? 13 and below. 13, wow. And right. the scale, for all you that don't know GCS, it's only 3 15, to 15. Right. So. And a dead person can have a GCS of 3. Right. Right. Or my stethoscope or this desk. Right. Everyone so, has a GCS yeah, of 3. Yeah, we all do. Right. And the door. Um, but the, the, the scale is, we've upped it a little bit just so we are on more alert of patients that are starting to decrease mm. in their GCS okay. before we eight intubate, right? right? Before you're behind before, the eight ball. Right. right. We also have some criteria, and this is new because everybody's getting old in the United States. Mm-hmm. In me, we have geriatric <laughs> protocol. I'm not. <laughs> Glad you're still young. <laughs> so there, that's a little bit different on them. There, We've got a little higher blood pressure that would be considered hypotensive for them. And I, I, can't quote it myself right now, but I think it's 110. 110 or below, if I'm 65 and above, is considered hypotensive mm. in a trauma patient. Mm-hmm. So those people, everyone's going to be there when that patient arrives, hopefully, unless they come by car. And is it because we call it or the information we're providing the to The information you guys? you're providing and also... Um, EMS crews are really getting good at calling that also. And I can read that in the, in the run sheet because it'll say trauma stat called to the hospital. Right. Okay. So those, everyone is there. You, a surgeon is there. Respiratory is there. Anesthesia is there. X-ray is there. The ER doc's there. you got three nurses. Um, everything's there and waiting because mm-hmm. they know this could be bad. We don't have a lot of time to try to save this patient. Right, right. 
we in EMS call it the golden hour. Very golden. Is, is it? Is that yeah, still? It's still, it's still a, that For way. you guys? Okay, yeah. So but we golden. want everything done within that hour. We want them to the OR within an it, hour. That, and that's if, our if goal. Can, right? That's our goal. We say uh, bright lights, cold steel, golden hour. Yep. From yeah, when exactly. it happened. Not from when no. we're dispatched. Right, from when it happened. Not from when we get on scene, <laughs> but from right. when the, the actual injury occurred. Yeah, so you yeah. got to, you know, you got to hustle prepared. Those are the those are the ones that really need to move smoothly. Yeah. And then we have our second level activation, which we call a level two activation, and that is based fully on mechanism. Mm -hmm. So stats are physiologic. Mm -hmm. Level twos are mechanism. So and we have criteria for those mechanisms. They're easily it's just easy to look at. Like I'm an adult and I fell greater than 20 feet. Right. So I might be walking around, but but science has proven that if an adult falls greater than 20 feet, they have an, a, high, a higher incidence of a, a severe injury. Right. So, and it'll be car wrecks, um, open fractures, two long bone fractures, things like that. Yeah. Those are all level twos. So that means that we're ready for you in the ER, but we're not going to have that full team there to, to take care of you. Okay. And then everything else, grandma that fell down and broke her hip. Right. That's a trauma eval. It means some surgeon of some kind is probably going to see that lady when she's admitted. Okay. And and should. Yeah. And I'm thinking, like, what about the population that are on blood thinners? Like, are they a... We treat everyone the same. Okay. It used to be, and these are all um, American College of Surgeon guidelines and the CDC guidelines for triage. We used to always put anyone that fell and hit their head on Coumadin. Yeah needs to be this well anyone that fell and hit their head if they're having any symptoms we are they're going to already be activated and they're supposed to theoretically be in the scanner within an hour which is what we would do with someone with a oncommitant right so so yeah so we just treat everybody the same instead of differentiate differentiating all those different comorbids out right it's just it's just saying basically like have a little bit like so don't exclude the person that's not on a thinner right from giving them the urgent care everybody gets the urgent care that they need regardless of thinners it's just you should have a higher index of suspicion should someone be on thinners or something like that okay exactly cool exactly so we're at the end of our show can you believe it no it goes by so fast doesn't it (laughs) girl i could talk forever um and ask questions because i'm nosy Okay, but I always end the show with a couple of questions, three questions that I ask every guest. Um, so are you ready for the questions? I don't know. I'm nervous <laughs> now. They're, they're good questions, okay. I, I think. So, and they're really meant to just be like, really hone in on like you and what you think about this topic, about the question I'm asking okay. you. Okay. Okay. So first question is, and it doesn't have to be anything trauma related, it could be anything, Okay. Um, if you could host a public safety announcement and bring awareness to something, what would it be? Hmm. I think right now it'd be wear your mask. <laughs> the COVID world. The COVID in the COVID world. So many people say that, like that. That's been the right. typical answer these days. I'm going to be like, with the exception. Okay. Of COVID. Yeah, no, no, no. That. We yeah. Can use that. yeah. Wear your mask and your seatbelt. Seatbelts. Yeah. Put your kid in a car seat. Right. There's so many. They've made it simple for us to keep ourselves safe. We just have to use the tools. Right. Right. A seatbelt. How hard is that to stop stop texting and driving even though we all do it? I know. Stop. Okay. Um, Next question. Ready? 
I think so. Yeah. What is one thing you would want younger people to know about this profession or about trauma? Like if there was a high, like I'm thinking high school kid and they were like, oh, I really want to be a nurse and do trauma. Like what piece, one piece of solid wisdom through your experiences would you want to like give them about this life in this world? I think um, probably my biggest piece of advice is you're never better than anybody else that you're taking care of. You need to really treat that person, no matter what the situation, as if they were someone that you care about. And I think nurses would be so much better that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Also that it is not as glamorous as it looks like. (laughs) (laughs) You go a lot of times, 12 hours without a lunch break or getting to pee, um, work crazy shifts all night, um, not a lot of thanks. Mm -hmm. And uh, other than that, it's been great. (laughs) (laughs) Other than the whole patient care side of everything. (laughs) Yeah. Other than that, it's been, but yeah, it's just, it's not as easy as it looks and it's not easy money. I mean, if you're a really good nurse, you're going to earn your money. Totally. And it's not glamorous. I like that you it said that. It is not glamorous. I not think, at all. I think a lot of times Hollywood tends to glamorize right. the job. It's and very it's dirty not and it's very smelly. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> and that's like also the whole point of this show is like let's bring the reality right. out of it what is, it is we it do. Is, it is it's disgusting hard. sometimes. It's hard. Right. Yeah. When you got to clean poop off of somebody that's laid in it for two weeks. Yeah. It is not or that's fun. Throwing it at you because they're right. high on meth. Throwing or it at you. I've or, had that yeah. thrown at me and smeared on the walls, yep, and then someone it. else wants a coke in the next room, and you're like, "Holy crap!" Yeah, and yeah. I've, I've seen people making snow angels in it. Oh, pretty. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, it's not glamorous. It is not. Okay, and last question. Ready? In one word, describe your experience in patient care. Let me think. I don't know if I can think of one word. Let's see. Educational. Oh. How so? Um, I've by taking care of patients, I've learned a lot about myself. Yeah. So I would say that. And that's not even anything to do with medicine, but just myself as a person. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. love that. So so it's not academic education. No, no. It's, it's humanistic education. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow, I look at the world differently, I think. Do you think it was that one call that ma- that shifted it, or is it I been think an it's, accumulation? I think it's been an accumulation. Definitely an accumulation, but I think that started it. Yeah. That one call started it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, so we're at the end of our show, Kelly. Thank you so much for your input, your thoughts, your time for being here and coming to the studio. It's been really fun talking to you, and I've learned a lot about you as a person, um, as well as a lot of what you all do um, when it comes to the world of trauma. So thank you. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. So um, thank you, everybody, for listening as well. Stay tuned for more. Um, For more information about this podcast, please visit EmergeEducationSolutions.com. And everybody out there who's listening, talk to you soon. Stay safe.